amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Elstrom. We'd like to thank today's episode sponsor, Takeda Oncology, for all they do for myeloma patients. Now, we have an announcement before we get started with today's show. On Monday, in honor of March, which is Myeloma Awareness Month, we are starting a program called Muscles for Myeloma. This is a fitness challenge to get us all up and moving while raising money for a good cause, myeloma research. Now, at ASH in December in Florida, I heard many doctors talking about how they are segmenting patients into fit, unfit, and frail categories and tailoring treatment based on those categories rather than by age. So our ability to handle more difficult treatments or extended treatments uh, typically will give us longer overall survival. So no matter what fitness level you are at, you can be just coming out of transplant or newly diagnosed or a maintenance therapy. Any exercise plan is a good plan for myeloma patients. So here is how it works. First, you can create uh, your own page on the Myeloma Crowd site by clicking on the link at the top. And when you create your page, you can tell everyone that you plan how you plan to get fit between March and April of this year. You can even add a photo or a video if you'd like. You can join alone or you can create a team page and invite people to join your team. Then to add some accountability to it, you can ask your friends and family to sponsor you for each minute you exercise. It could be a cent per minute, 10 cents per minute, a dollar a minute, or more. And it's kind of like the elementary school walkathon. All proceeds will be donated to the Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative, which are two important immunotherapy projects that are dramatically changing myeloma care. And we're also joining local races in several areas around the U.S. during March and April. So you can find the races we've got planned so far on the right sidebar, which today includes San Diego, Salt Lake City, Fernandita Beach, and we expect about eight to ten more locations coming in the next week. Well, it's an incredibly important initiative to get us all moving and get those endorphins flowing by making and making us more fit in the process. But please consult with your doctor before starting any fitness program. Now on to today's show. Now our next Myeloma Crowd TV episode is on the use of vaccines in myeloma. And last year we had a show with Dr. Larry Kwok about a vaccine in development at MD Anderson. This vaccine is now being used in a clinical trial, which brings up a very important issue for all myeloma patients. As we start using the new drugs, will they be replacing standard treatments, or will we be adding them together for our very best benefit? So here to talk with us today is Dr. Muzaffar Kazabash at MD Anderson. We're delighted that he'll be helping us understand how to blend the old with the new, combining well-accepted treatments like stem cell transplant with newer treatments like immunotherapies, because it sounds like they might not be mutually exclusive. Um, he is an expert in both stem cell transplant and immunotherapy, so he is really uniquely qualified to discuss this to- topic. So welcome, Dr. Kozlobosh. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, let me introduce you before we get started. 
Um, Dr. Sure. Kozlobosch is professor of the Department of Stem Cell Transplantation in the Division of Cancer Medicine at the University of Texas at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. He also serves as medical director of the Transplant Inpatient Service and is co-director of the Stem Cell Transplant Fellowship Program. His research interests include, of course, stem cell transplant and myeloma, but also cancer vaccines and immunotherapy approaches. He serves on several committees, including the Myeloma Tissue Bank Steering Committee, Institutional Review Board, and Clinical Research Committee. And he has received awards, including the Excellent Review Award and the ASBMT Travel Grant for Tandem ASBMT. Now, to put this in perspective, MD Anderson is the largest center in the United States that does transplants. And talking before the show, it sounds <laughs> he let me know that they are doing 900 transplants per year, and three of 300 of those are in myeloma. So he has his hands full. Welcome again, Dr. Kavalbash. Glad to be here. Thank you. So now at the recent ASH conference, there were discussions about the continuing role of traditional therapies like stem cell transplant and the new drug development. And immunotherapy seemed to be bigger than ever, um, even the year prior. Uh, but are there two key messages here, a blending of the old with the new to improve outcomes? Yes. Uh, I think uh, uh, there is always uh, this uh, linear progression where uh, older treatments, proven treatments are combined with newer treatments uh, to basically enhance and increase the benefit to improve the outcome. And it takes a long time to replace any of the um, uh, current standard of care or treatments, uh, uh, especially when combining the two treatments offer you greater benefit. So unless the new treatment is uh, uniquely effective, uh, much less toxic, and basically eliminates the need for the older treatment, the general approach is to combine the older and newer treatments and to combine them in the most effective way where you can maximize their benefits and at the same time minimize their toxicities. And at ASH, I was um, listening to one of the sessions and one of the doctors was talking about transplant and he said there's still no single agent that's as powerful as milfalan is, which is what's used in stem cell transplant. And with your background with um, both stem cell transplant and vaccines and immunotherapies, um, is there a difference in kind of power behind some of these new treatments? Um, sure. So there are basically uh, different ways uh, to look at the big picture. The basic uh, goal is to get rid of myeloma, to kill and eliminate and eradicate those cancer cells. And there are different pathways. There are different mechanisms, different approaches to get to that point. So one is what we call the conventional treatments or standard treatments, and as we have seen in the last two decades and especially in the last few years, tremendous progress. We have understood many different pathways. So we have immunomodulatory agents. We have proteasome inhibitors. We have uh, uh, H-DAC inhibitors like panabenostat. Uh, so that's one way of targeting the cancer cells. Then we have these old alkylating agents like melphalan, which we know that if given in very high doses, uh, can completely eradicate 
myeloma cells even uh, for a short period of time, but they are very effective. So that's another way of attacking and targeting those cancer cells. And then uh, there are other novel approaches, which is to harness the power of immune system, the endogenous immune system, hence the development and growth of immunotherapies. And then there are other pathways as we understand the biology of the cancers and what molecules are playing a role in that and how to target them. So the bottom line is that uh, uh, to achieve that goal, we have got all these different tools, all these different pathways that we can use to kill cancer cells. So this is where uh, all this growth and development uh, is taking place, and which is, of course, good news for our patients and good to uh, basically target that disease and achieve improvements in outcome. Mm -hmm. And, <coughs> excuse me, it's been no surprise that typically combination therapies have been used in myeloma treatment, you know, a proteasome inhibitor and an imid and something else. So following what you just said, it's not that unlikely to just say, well, let's start adding immunotherapies into that mix and, and see, you know, what happens. Sure, absolutely. So as we have seen, uh, and since you referred to ASH, so as uh, we have all heard that with the availability of uh, uh, agents like proteasome inhibitors and immunomodulatory agents, there was this uh, uh, general discussion that, well, they have replaced uh, stem cell transplant or high-dose melphalan. But as you rightly pointed out, that these are two very effective approaches. And if you combine them, you can get additional benefit. You can uh, get additive benefit, uh, and they are not mutually exclusive. And that's one of the major trials from uh, the IFM group, which uh, compared the newer agents with stem cell transplant upfront versus the same agents but delayed stem cell transplant. And they showed that if you use all these things together early on in the course, you can prolong the duration of remission and prolong the progression-free survival. So with using the same paradigm, if we can safely and uh, thoughtfully incorporate immunotherapies in that mix and immunotherapies on their own are showing the benefit, uh, we anticipate that we are going to further improve the outcome and enhance the benefit. Mm-hmm. And can I ask you just your personal opinion? Because there are a lot of different opinions in how myeloma is treated, even among experts. And there's one philosophy that kind of says, you know, hit it hard up front, which is what you kind of referred to with the IFM, the French study. And then there's another approach that says, well, you know, we might be close to a cure soon, so maybe we don't hit you hard up front with everything. Um, we just kind of see how it goes. Do you have a preference? When you sure. look at a newly diagnosed patient who's just coming into it? Yeah, so very good question. So, yes, as uh, uh, you know, there are uh, people talk about two different philosophies, cure or control, or uh, this is um, uh, that this is not a sprint, this is a marathon. So, uh, and in selected patients, yes, uh, uh, one can discuss both approaches, and there are clinical trials and data to support both. Uh, since you asked my personal opinion and my interpretation of existing data, so here is what I think, that uh, 
so far, the only way we have treated cancers, and especially blood cancers, is by attacking them hard early in the course and eradicating it. This is the approach we have used in curing acute myeloid leukemia. This is the approach we have used in curing acute lymphoblastic leukemia, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, or Hodgkin's disease, that at the time of diagnosis, use a combination of agents uh, that com uh, that have uh, additional or uh, multiplied benefits uh, and with minimal or as little toxicity as possible and try to eradicate the disease up front, try to achieve a complete remission. And that's the first step to achieving a cure. We have not cured any cancer by treating it gently and waiting for it to relapse and then hitting it hard. Every, as you know, uh, with the, the current data in multiple myeloma, with each relapse, the duration of remission goes down. So the best time to go for the cure is early in the course of the disease. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, that was I know that was uh, my doctor's philosophy, but I know everyone is so different. It's very hard for a newly diagnosed patient to decide <laughs> right. because and sometimes it just depends on who you go to. So when you when it comes to research, you have training in both stem cell transplant research and also immunotherapy research. Are there differences in the thinking or approaches between research looking at um, those two different approaches? Is there like are different paradigms, I would say? Uh, between those two, or there are kind of similarities? Sure. Uh, so there are great similarities. So again, uh, uh, what, no matter what type of research uh, we are doing, uh, and especially since uh, um, uh, people like myself are also uh, physicians who are taking care of patients and treating physicians, uh, so our ultimate goal is to understand a particular disease treat it as effectively as possible, and go for the cure. So the general principles are the same, uh, whether it is an immunotherapy drug or whether it is a targeted molecular drug or whether it is uh, an immunomodulatory drug. First, you want to study it uh, in the laboratory or in animal models to see how it works, what kind of uh, toxicities uh, to anticipate, how to manage those, and then you start out uh, uh, in clinical trials. Uh, in terms of how different drugs work and different approaches work, sure, there are differences. Uh, um, so, you know, one of the oldest uh, immunotherapeutic approaches is stem cell transplant from a donor. So that's uh, obviously not as personalized form of immunotherapy, but that is immunotherapy. Uh, mm -hmm. The reason we cure patients with allogenic or donor transplant is primarily because we utilize the donor immune system, which goes after patients' disease, whether it's the leukemia cells or myeloma cells. But the drawback is that the same immune system can go after their normal organs. So that's the oldest way of uh, using immunotherapy. But there are other approaches uh, 
uh, as well, which have been used in uh, uh, drug development and simple uh, chemotherapy trials. And same approaches can be used in immunotherapy trials, as you are seeing that uh, patients are being treated in phase one and phase two studies. So there are some differences, but there are great similarities as well. And the process sounds like it's pretty similar. Uh, that now, is correct. In terms mm -hmm. of uh, testing a drug, taking it to the next level, uh, yes, that process or doing the clinical trial, where the differences come, and I'm sure you're, uh, one of your, uh, um, maybe a caller or you may have uh, more questions about that, but the differences come on how to manage different agents, whether it's antibodies or cellular therapies, and there, of course, they have their own specific mechanisms of action, uh, their own uh, particular type of pharmacology, uh, and one has to have some basic understanding of those processes. Mm-hmm. And I know you're saying that immunotherapy really started, that, I mean, the allotransplant or the donor transplant is an immunotherapy. So could you explain your um, your training, I guess, or your background in sure. transplantation and then how you did um, vaccines, immunotherapies at the same time? Because I think that's kind of fascinating. Uh, sure, absolutely. So uh, as I mentioned that uh, Anyone who's trained in a stem cell transplantation at some level is also trained in immunotherapy because allogenic stem cell transplantation is a form of immunotherapy, so you have to have some basic understanding of immunology and a lot of things that happen are mediated by T lymphocytes that can cause so-called graft versus tumor effect and can also cause graft versus host disease. So we are uh, trained in handling those type of complications and uh, of course uh, we are taught to understand those mechanisms. So that's one thing um, that is part of the uh, training of stem cell transplant, which, of course, in the bigger picture is incorporated in the, tre uh, in the training of uh, hematologists and oncologists. Uh, and then my personal interest or how all these things uh, developed, so I've been working at MD Anderson for the last 14 years, and before that I did my training at uh, the National Institutes of Health, and in both these places, as you know, research uh, emphasis is great, and here at MD Anderson in my department we have a lab of transplantation immunology, uh, we also have cancer um, uh, cancer immunolo uh, immunology treatment center, uh, and there are a number of pioneers of immunotherapy who work here. So I've been working and collaborating with several of those colleagues. So uh, when I came here, I started working on a vaccine that was developed for the treatment of myeloid, acute myeloid leukemia and uh, chronic myeloid leukemia. Uh, so I initiated that trial. Uh, I worked uh, on developing trials using T cells to treat leukemia, and then working with Dr. Kwok, um, whom you mentioned, who was uh, in one of your previous shows, uh, we worked on developing uh, this myeloma vaccine and then va vaccine specific. Uh, 
T cells. Uh, so this is uh, the, another immunotherapy approach uh, that we utilize. So it's a combination of stem cell transplant, that training and background, and working with uh, uh, people and researchers who are coming from the immunology side and how to bring those treatments in the realm of uh, stem cell transplant and bringing them to the clinic uh, that my career sort of developed this way. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to what you just mentioned and maybe break it apart by piece by piece. So Absolutely. You're, you're working on a vaccine that Dr. Kwok was also working on, and sure. maybe you can give us a quick refresher of what that is, but maybe you can also explain just in general the use of vaccines in myeloma. When and how are they best used and how do they work and um, things like that. Absolutely. So, yeah, and this is something that I, um, I try to discuss with my students, with my residents and fellows. So when we talk about immunotherapy, what do we mean? So uh, very, in very simple terms, uh, so essentially what we are trying to do here is using the power of patient's own immune system. And we know immune system is powerful because uh, um, we can reject if we, someone transplants a kidney or a liver, the immune system can go after it and literally melt away that organ. So that's the power of immune system. So somehow the goal is how one can power, harness that power and use that to go after and attack cancer cells. So two very basic ways of using immunotherapy. One is uh, what we can call the active immunotherapy, and second would be the passive form of immunotherapy. Active immunotherapy would be vaccines, just like an influenza vaccine that you give a little piece of either the germ or, in this case, a little particle or a molecule or a protein derived from the cancer cell uh, so that the body can see that as a cancer cell and mounts an immune response. This is active immunization. This is what we can see with a vaccine. The second type of immunotherapy is uh, passive or adoptive immunotherapy. Here we are not stimulating the immune system with a vaccine, but we are giving cells, like T cells, and those T cells can be genetically modified, like CAR T cells, or somehow just stimulated with different cytokines, like the T cells that I am using. So these, this is the second way of delivering or approaching immunotherapy, which is the passive immunization or T cells or antibodies which are also part of the immune system, that you give that protein that can detect a target. So vaccination is one way of giving immunotherapy. Antibodies and T cells is another way of giving immunotherapy. And now you are seeing a third approach of uh, augmenting the immune response or uh, revving up the immune system, which is the checkpoint inhibitors, and you will hear a lot about those as well. that has been on the horizon for the last few years and have made a tremendous uh, progress in the treatment of kidney cancers and melanomas, and we saw a 
presentation at ASH of their effectiveness in multiple myeloma, where you basically remove breaks from the immune system, allowing it to go after the cancer cells. Uh, so, so these are the different approaches that we use um, to with, that we use as immunotherapy to target myeloma. So now. Uh, to answer your next question uh, is what are the different types of vaccines that are being used in myeloma? So again, uh, there are a number of those. I think the most common ones that you have heard about uh, or you may have seen the papers, one is the idiotype vaccine, which is what Dr. Kwok developed and which is what we are using in our clinical trials. So idiotype protein is basically a little piece from the M spike. So this is uh, uh, a piece from the protein taken from myeloma cells of the patients. And uh, any myeloma patient is familiar with M protein or M spike or para protein. So this uh, idiotype is basically a little piece derived from the M protein. So that's the most commonly used and the best understood myeloma vaccine. But there have been other vaccines that have been used. Some of them have used dendritic cells, which are the antigen-presenting cells in the body. Some of them have used other proteins that may be present on the surface of myeloma cells, like NYESO or Survivant. So these are the different types of peptide vaccines or dendritic cell vaccines that have been used in myeloma. Okay, great. And now you said, so one piece of your clinical trial that you're going to talk about, hopefully, is um, this vaccine, this idiotype vaccine. So you take sure. a part of a patient's own M-spike, and then you're creating a vaccine that's very personalized. That is correct. So and, uh, uh -huh. basically, in uh, so I'll give you a little summary of this trial. So this trial, uh, the hypothesis is that if we inject this little piece of M protein to the patient, will, the patient will be able to mount an immune response against their own myeloma. Normally, the immune system is suppressed, but the way we process this protein, this piece of protein that we basically conjugate it, we bind it to an immune adjuvant, the kind of thing that is used in vaccines in general, and we give it with another growth factor that can boost immune response called GMCSF. So we give this vaccine to the patient. So in this clinical trial, which is a controlled trial in the sense that half the patients were supposed to get their vaccine treatment, vaccine-stimulated T cells, and the other half were supposed to get control vaccine, which means that they were not getting the idiotype, they were just getting that non-specific immune stimulator, and combined with, again, the T cells, which were supposed to be activated or amped up by this vaccine. And this whole treatment is done in the setting of high-dose melphalan and autologous stem cell transplant. So this is how we did it. Uh, so every patient who was, uh, who was enrolled in the trial would either go to the control arm or go to the idiotype arm. If you go to the idiotype vaccine arm, you get a vaccination, and about two weeks later, we will collect your T cells. These are the cells of the immune system that are supposed to be activated 
by the vaccine. And then we would collect those T cells and we will activate them in the laboratory. And this approach has been used by University of Pennsylvania and has been published uh, a few times in the context of other vaccinations like influenza and pneumonia vaccine. So we use that to basically activate T cells against myeloma. Then patient had their high-dose melphalan and autologous transplant. And then two days after transplant, they got their T cells, which were activated. And then they got two more booster vaccinations. If they were in the idiotype vaccine arm, they got two additional idiotype vaccines one month and three months after transplant. If they were in the control arm, same schedule that you get the vaccine, we collect your T cells, you do the transplant, and then we give you T cells back and then two booster vaccinations. So it sounds complex, but everyone gets three vaccinations, vaccine-primed or stimulated T cells in the setting of an autologous transplant. And our hypothesis uh, was that patients who will get the idiotype vaccine will have a more robust myeloma-specific response, myeloma-specific immune response, which will translate into better overall response and a longer duration of remission. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that's terrific, and I think I want to ask some more questions about that. Absolutely. So I don't, I don't think I understand the difference between the do the two arms because you're vaccinating people on both sides, right? Yeah. Prior. So, so good question. So, in order to show that we are getting a myeloma-specific response, so one group of patients is getting the idiotype which is taken from their myeloma protein. The other group of patients, the other half, the control half, is not getting the idiotype. They are just getting a non-specific uh, immune stimulator called KLH, which is used whether it's a flu vaccine or whether it is a pneumonia vaccine or anthrax vaccine. So it's a part of a number of vaccinations. So it's just a non-specific stimulator of immune system. It can activate anything, but it won't be a myeloma-specific immune response. So we want to see the difference. If we do idiotype vaccine, we are going to see specifically anti-myeloma T cells going up versus non-specifically all the cells going up, but not particular enrichment of anti-myeloma T cells. Mm-hmm. And that vaccine has been actually personalized for you as an individual patient. So uh, that is correct. And that's mm-hmm. the uh, that's uh, it's strength as well as weakness. Strength because it's it is personalized therapy. This is taken from patients' own myeloma protein from their unique M spike. But uh, uh, the disadvantage is that it takes time to make that vaccine. So we have to collect it from each patient, and then it takes two to three weeks to develop the vaccine, and then it has to go through all the release testing to make sure that it fulfills all the criteria that, yes, it is safe to be given to a patient. So if you have really fast-growing myeloma, is that going to be a problem too? Uh, or- so, yes. So in th- those type of situations, uh, um, it may be, except that 
the way uh, this particular trial was set up, that patients uh, were already getting their induction treatment mm-hmm. while we were pre- preparing for the vaccine. So a newly diagnosed patient comes to us, and let's say here this patient is receiving induction treatment with uh, uh, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, and we have collected there because this patient has to have an M spike for us to make the vaccine. So we would see them early. We would collect their blood to make the vaccine while the patients are getting the treatment. So we did not run into that problem. So when the patient has completed three cycles, the vaccine is already being made. And then they basically go and get the vaccine. But yes, in those rare situations where if you need to treat someone right away on this trial, but the disease is progressing, then obviously you would not want to wait just to uh, just to make the vaccine. You would then go on and treat with something that can be given right away. But that's probably going to be a pretty small portion if you already have patients that are starting on some kind of treatment already. So, Absolutely. So as part of the T-cell portion of this, um, I read that it was a CAR T-cell. Is that true? Because we've done other shows on CAR T-cells, and if so, I have other questions for you about that. Right. Uh, no, good question. So, no, these were not CAR T-cells. So the CAR T-cells, as uh, you have done the program, so those are genetically modified cells. Those are genetically engineered cells where uh, through the manipulation, those cells are made to express a certain protein on their surface so they can go and bind to their target and kill them. These cells are not genetically modified. So these cells were collected from the patients after the patient had received the vaccination. So they were supposed to be stimulated by that vaccine, but they were not genetically modified. But they were manipulated in the laboratory, which is what approach that was developed by Dr. Carl June's team, uh, that we would grow them in the presence of these beads, which would activate them. They would grow and multiply, and then we would give them back to the patient. So these were not CAR T-cells. These are antigen-specific or idiotype antigen-restricted T-cells. So they were not genetically modified, so they were not CAR T-cells. And the reason for using the CAR, the T-cells, is that T-cells, it, uh, from just what I've learned, and you can correct me, is that um, T-cells help kill, you know, things that are not supposed to be in your body. And a lot of times myeloma patients have a very weakened immune system. So by taking these T-cells out and expanding them, growing them up, and then giving them back, you, you're kind of, you know, helping to reset the patient, what the patient already had, maybe before they had myeloma, the stronger immune system, basically. Absolutely. So as uh, you rightly pointed out, that uh, vaccination itself uh, is not an idiotype vaccine, although it's personalized and patient-specific, and it has been around for many years, but because of the inherent immunosuppression, patients are not able to mount an effective immune response. So this is basically... uh, a double whammy, a combining two effective approaches that a vaccine 
stimulates their own immune system. And then when you take T cells, which are part of their immune system, and grow them to a very, very high number and activate them, and uh, uh, then you give those back to the patient. So with this combined approach of uh, immunization with a vaccine and then giving these mega doses of T cells, you can effectively kill myeloma cells uh, in a shorter period of time and, and obviously in a much higher number. So that is the whole idea of combining the two approaches so you can get a much higher cell kill in a much shorter period of time. Well, that's a very nice strategy because I've heard other doctors talk about using vaccines in myeloma and they normally say, gosh, you can use vaccines, but you have to have a pretty low tumor burden to have the vaccine work on its own. So sounds like what you're doing is combining it with something else and then, you know, doing transplant and giving it again, which is great. Absolutely. So we have, like, uh, um, our first uh, question uh, that combining what we know and what works with some of the newer approaches, uh, because obviously we're still not curing most of our patients. So all whatever we can get, uh, whatever effective strategies, if we can rationally combine them and get the maximum benefit, the better it is. And I just, I guess I want to just make a comment because, you know, I think a patient could go through a standard stem cell transplant and then they could go on to the, the standard drugs. Um, but after you complete something like this, you can do that anyway. So I look at things like this and I say, why wouldn't you join something like this to give yourself um, just like a, a step up, you know, from what the traditional or the standard treatment therapy is? I just think you, using some of the some of the newer stuff in a, in addition to right. what we know already works is kind of a no-brainer. Yes, and and I think you are seeing that more and more uh, people are uh, encouraged to participate in clinical trials, and hence you see these great publications telling us that uh, uh, exazomib works or daratumumab works or elatuzumab works or the SAR antibody works. It's because we know that there are all these things that can be incorporated in the existing treatment and as long as they are done safely and in a scientific way, we can learn from it, and we will all come out as winners because we'll have a, another effective treatment to improve the outcome. Mm-hmm. Now, I agree. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the trial? Um, is it currently open, and is yours the only facility that's doing it, and how many patients are you looking for, and who who is this trial for? Sure. So this particular trial, we just recently completed enrollment. Uh, so the trial was open at two facilities, MD Anderson and University of Pennsylvania. We treated 40 patients uh, in total uh, at the two centers, 30 of them at MD Anderson and 10 at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And uh, all 40 patients have now completed their transplants as well as T-cells and vaccinations. In terms of uh, who uh, was eligible for the trial, so it actually had a pretty uh, open enrollment. So as long as someone had multiple myeloma, 
up to age 70, they had to have an IgG monoclonal protein because this idiotype vaccine, the way the technology works, is currently made from an IgG monoclonal protein. So if someone had IgA or IgM, uh, they were not eligible. And also, because we are making vaccine from the idiotype or from the M spike, so patients had to have an M spike of at least 0.2 grams. Uh, so not very high, but at least 0.2 gram for us to obtain enough protein to make the vaccine. So almost all newly diagnosed myeloma patients who had an IgG monoclonal spike and who were otherwise considered transplant eligible up to 70 years of age were eligible for this trial. Okay. And now that it's completed or the enrollment's completed, how long does it take for you to complete the study and then get the results and publish the results and create your next study? Absolutely. So we are actually uh, in the process of gathering all the data, both in terms of immune response, clinical response, and again, um, after treating 40 patients, we did not see any unexpected toxicity, um, unexpected in the sense nothing that you would uh, see outside of high-dose melphalan. We did not see any uh, immunological reactions or uh, patients going to the intensive care unit because of the cell therapy toxicity. Uh, so no unexpected toxicities, no treatment-related deaths. Uh, in terms of responses, because our follow-up is short, but up to 90 to 180 days, we are seeing the degree of complete responses or the number of complete responses that one would expect. And again, uh, with caution, because the follow-up is short, we are seeing more, we saw more complete responses in the idiotype arm than in the control arm, but again, after a short follow-up, also uh, because patients also got high-dose melphalan, one cannot read too much into it. But my goal is, uh, my hope is that by uh, this year's ASH, uh, we would have uh, the data to at least present it at the meeting and then put together a manuscript. Mm-hmm. And if someone says, gosh, this sounds really interesting, I want to join a trial similar to this or like this, what sure. would you recommend for them? Right. So the next generation of this study we are working on and what we may want to do is uh, refine our uh, uh, vaccine. What we are working on is something that can be developed commercially, and there are a number of uh, those uh, approaches that we are working on with Dr. Quark's lab and others, uh, because as you heard, it takes a while to generate vaccine from each individual patient. So are there ways where you can get myeloma-specific proteins uh, and they can be available at a very short notice. So if we have to modify it, we would do that and then combining it with the T-cell approaches. But there are a number of immunotherapy approaches that are available at different centers. Like I said, that uh, you've heard about the CAR T-cells. You, uh, I'm sure you've heard uh, from Dr. Borello's, uh, um, who will be featured in your program, uh, the 
the marrow infiltrating lymphocytes. Uh, and then we at MD Anderson have our own CAR T-cell program, both directed against uh, uh, CD19 as well as uh, some other targets on myeloma and lymphoma cells. We have a program where we are using natural killer cells, also part of the immune system, uh, which uh, we are targeting against myeloma. So there are a number of different immunotherapy approaches that are being, uh, that are available at major centers to treat myeloma and other blood cancers. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, we started the Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative, and I don't know if you're that familiar with that, with that but we um, are actually helping to fund the research by Dr. Brello and also some CAR T-cell research um, in Germany going after CD38. Um, Wait. So I... Yeah. <laughs> this okay. is a great... I'm, I'm so of course, we are always moment. looking for funding. Uh, uh, as you know, research is expensive yeah, and very competitive. No, this is actually a great avenue, and we'll be exploring that as well. Yeah. So... Um, I guess with all these newly approved drugs and the the list of things that are going on is just incredible. So how do patient, how do you recommend the patients best understand their treatment choices, and how do they go about navigating um, the possibilities when there are so many different combinations? Sure, and and this is obviously an important issue as you know and we as physicians also know that it is uh, especially when you read so many things and there are news items and how do you filter that what is important and where does this particular therapy fit. I think if possible, given the complexity of treatments uh, and uh, the wealth of options that are available, which is great, but how do I utilize them? Which one works best for me or where do I fit in this scheme of things? If possible, I think uh, it would be important for everyone to see someone who specializes in treating myeloma because, again, it's not that uh, we have uh, some uh, um, we have some greater intelligence or endowment. It's just that uh, you spend more time in studying a disease or treating a group of patients. Uh, as a result, you are trained, you read, you learn, you interact more about that, so you get uh, to develop a perspective. So if possible, see a myeloma specialist at a uh, cancer center that is closest to you. Uh, even if you do not continue treatment there for obvious reasons that uh, uh, too far or you have to travel, but you do get some perspective. And most of us work with our colleagues uh, in uh, local cancer centers or uh, clinics, uh, and it's a very good relationship which uh, helps both ways. So that would be one thing if possible. Number two, of course, uh, and I tell my patients and I give them all this information, there are great resources available, like your site, and you know that there are a number of other um, websites or literature or support groups where patients can get to meet very well-informed and knowledgeable people who can 
provide very well-authenticated information that is very useful uh, for the patients to navigate and negotiate. So I think these are a couple of important things. Seeing a myeloma specialist uh, whenever or uh, possible earlier in the course is good. And number two, to communicate uh, or get information from authentic uh, websites or resources and connect with a support group, uh, uh, I find them very uh, helpful and very encouraging for my patients. Mm-hmm. Great. I, I completely agree when you talk about having a myeloma specialist in your corner. And um, for those who are listening that don't have one, you can, most patients or a lot of patients go to a myeloma specialist and they help kind of craft their treatment plan, and then they go back to their local oncologist and get their local care. So they're not traveling all the time, but you get the benefit of having someone who truly understands this disease. And I just think it's so incredibly complicated that there's no way that the local oncologist can be as up-to-date as a myeloma specialist. I just don't think it's possible. Sure. And and just to give you an example, here at MD Anderson, about half of my patients are from outside of Texas. And we get patients from as far as Kuwait and Dubai and Saudi Arabia or uh, Portugal or uh, uh, Venezuela to Wyoming or uh, Oregon, and we work with our colleagues in all those settings, and patients are completing their cycles, and some of them come here for transplant. Some don't even do that, but they work with their local oncologist, and uh, it's a long-term relationship that we have, and it works out very well. So, yes, I think it would be really invaluable to have a myeloma specialist uh, that you go to, and earlier you go to, better it is, because then you can basically chart out a plan. Mm-hmm. I agree. So now before we at- open it up to caller questions, which I would like to do, I would like to also ask you about kind of an unrelated topic, but I guess related. Um, you have an aloe transplant and an exazomib trial, which is the new oral uh, proteasome inhibitor for high-risk myeloma patients. So when are allotransplant strategies warranted for patients, and um, why why exazomib? Yeah, absolutely. So great uh, question. So as you know, uh, allogenic transplant has been used in myeloma for uh, as long as myeloma has been treated with transplant, for about 30 years or so. And as we know today, if there is one treatment that is potentially curative in myeloma, it is allogeneic transplant. Um, There have been studies that have shown that after 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, there are patients who are alive and disease-free without any treatment. So this is the positive side of the allogeneic transplant. But why it's not being used Why is it not so commonly used? Why aren't more patients doing allogenic transplant? Well, it's because of its toxicity. Because uh, as opposed to an autologous transplant with melphalan, after an allogenic transplant, unfortunately, 10 to 15% patients can die in the first year, not because of their disease, but because of the complications from transplant, which is a significant number. And those complications are graft-versus-host disease or serious infections because of immune compromise or immunosuppression. So 
we have not been able to overcome those complications. So a number of trials have been done comparing allogeneic transplants with autologous transplants. And the bottom line is that uh, although you see more relapses after autologous transplant, but with, because of high early death rate, the overall outcome remains the same. So because of that, allogeneic transplant is not considered a standard approach. It should only be used in the setting of a clinical trial. And this is whether you go to the NCCN guidelines or you listen to any myeloma expert, they say, yes, it may have a role, but it's not a well-defined role. It has to be done only in the setting of a, uh, in the setting of a clinical trial. So this trial is actually a national study. It's a bone marrow transplant clinical trials network, and I think about 40 to 50 centers uh, all over United United States are already um, en enrolling patients on this study. So this trial is only for patients with high-risk myeloma based on cytogenetics and FISH studies, 17P deletion, 414, 1416, plasma cell leukemia, or patients who have an early relapse after their primary treatment, uh, less than 18-month remission. So they, by all definition, are are defined as high-risk patients with their overall survival of only two to three years. So it is designed for patients who are known high-risk, who are known to have, based on statistics, short survival. And if those patients have a donor, either a fully matched sibling or an unrelated donor in the registry, they are eligible. And the hypothesis is that even in these patients with such high-risk disease, allogeneic transplant can potentially cure. And that's what this trial is all about. Uh, Ixazomib is incorporated, or Ninlaro is incorporated in this uh, because of two reasons. After the transplant, patients still relapse, a uh, uh, percentage of patients. So what we are doing here is that for one year after allogenic transplant, patient will continue to get exazomib. It will be randomized. Half of them will get exazomib, other half won't. And the hypothesis is that the ones who will get exazomib will have a longer duration of remission and better overall outcome. Second thing about exazomib is that it also, uh, this group of drugs also reduce the risk of graft-versus-host disease, which is a major complication of allogenic transplant. This has been shown with bortezomib. So, again, extrapolating that to exazomib, that's the second potential benefit, that it may also reduce graft-versus-host disease. So that, in a nutshell, what this trial is. For high-risk patients uh, uh, with a uh, short life expectancy who will be eligible for this trial. Interesting. And I, as I understand, I heard from another doctor that um, the proteasome inhibitors might be great for induction and maintenance therapy for deletion 17 specifically. So that's a nice addition. Uh, at this point, for high-risk patients, the only treatment that has made a difference uh, is uh, proteasome inhibitor and the study from uh, the Hovan group, from the Dutch-Belgian group, where they use bortezomib as maintenance, showed that the patient, their patients with 17P deletion had similar outcome as the ones without. Uh, but again, mm. we need 
more data and more trials to show that and confirm that. Well, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. Well, I do want to open it up for some caller questions. So if you have a question um, for Dr. Kazabash, please call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And um, we will start with um, caller at 9836757. Go ahead with your question. Hi, good afternoon, doctor. This is Dana Holmes. You and I follow each other on Twitter, so it's oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> yes, it's finally nice to actually meet and, and speak to you. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. Yes, thank you, sir. I have a question. Um, sure. I understand myeloma patients don't typically have robust responses to the traditional vaccines, like the flu or the pneumonia vaccines. So I think that means that they don't elicit an antibody response, which I guess would be a B-cell response. Am I understanding that the vaccine that you're using doesn't rely upon that B-cell response, that antibody response? It's it's looking to elicit a T-cell response? So it Uh, wouldn't really matter if myeloma patients don't have, uh, that they actually have that limited response to traditional vaccines? Right. So very good question. So uh, so yes, uh, this vaccine should elicit both B and T cell response. But since we know that cancer patients in general and myeloma patients in particular, because after all, B cells or plasma cells are part of the immune system, are unable to mount that robust and immune response. Uh, So yes, we do expect some immune response, but that's why we are also using these T cells which are derived from these patients and activating them, growing them, making them more powerful uh, by stimulating them in the laboratory and giving them back. So we are not just relying on the vaccine for the exact reason that patients themselves are unable to mount a robust immune response. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was that was very um, good to hear because even I myself am a smoldering myeloma patient and already I'm not um, seeing much of a response to the annual flu or, or the pneumonia vaccine. So I'm interested in, in listening to what you have to say. That's great that you guys are working around the limitations that myeloma presents to patients. I uh, appreciate that. Um, I, I know that these trials are for newly diagnosed myeloma patients, and, and you did state that um, you felt it was best to really approach the disease as early as possible. Right. Um, and I realize, again, this is in the realm of the newly diagnosed myeloma patients. But, but Doctor, what about as early as smoldering patients? Do we have um, something hope? Can we have hope down the road that something like this will come along for for us? And again, I realize, you know, we're talking stem cell transplants, and that's um, certainly not something that you're, that many of you or your colleagues would introduce in the smoldering population. But what do you see in store for us um, along these lines? Yeah, so excellent question. As you know, there's been a great interest in uh, treating smoldering patients because, like in the beginning, I said that. Uh, if one has to cure cancer, and we take the example of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, you hear that early detection is the way to achieve a cure. You diagnose them early and treat them aggressively and get the best possible outcome. So using that paradigm, people are looking at treating smoldering myeloma. So here at MD Anderson, we had a 
trial for smoldering myeloma patients with vaccination. So in fact, this is one of the areas where vaccination approaches. Uh, as I see the role of vaccine per se, without T cells or without CAR T cells, uh, the best places where one can use the vaccine is when you have a very low volume of disease, where you allow the immune system to grow and go after the tumor and there is no overwhelming disease burden to overcome. So smoldering myeloma, post-treatment in the maintenance setting, those are the kind of settings where vaccines and immunotherapies uh, can play a big role. So yes, there are centers that are already doing uh, vaccination approaches for smoldering myeloma. And mm -hmm. on that, there are many places, and many of you, since you are all so knowledgeable and well-informed, uh, are probably aware that there are many centers that are doing clinical trials for high-risk smoldering myeloma, and some of them, of course, in other smoldering myeloma patients as well, again, trying to achieve a cure at the earliest possible uh, disease manifestation. Mm -hmm. your, your colleague, Dr. Orlowski, when Jenny um, interviewed him um, a, a bit ago, I asked him what his dream trial would be for a smoldering myeloma patient, um, taking into account the available drugs uh, right now, in other right. words, the monoclonal antibodies and things of that nature. And he indicated that he, down the road, would love to see a monoclonal antibody um, cocktail of sorts. Um, you know, mixing and matching all of the ones that are out there. And um, so we're, you know, obviously the smoldering myeloma patient community gets excited when we hear things of this nature. And he did mention that he was going to be, or actually MD Anderson was going to be working with the CD38 antibody by um, Sanofi, the um, isotuximab. Right. Because um, I know that there are, are many there are many centers that are involved in the daratumumab. Right. But from what I'm learning and understanding is that the each of these antibodies, although they go after the CD38, I guess, protein or the antibody on the actual myeloma cells, they're actually still different in the way that they're, um, I guess, killing yeah, the myeloma cells. So the whole idea of an antibody cocktail sounds really intriguing. And I'm just delighted to know that you and your colleagues just really – take such an interest in the myeloma community and are really looking for curative approaches. Thank you. Yes. Gives yes, us a lot of help. This is, of course, uh, an exciting time because we have so many tools available. I mean, there are, of course, people who have been trying to do that for years, uh, mm -hmm. many of our mentors, but it's just we did not have those medications. When I review uh, for publication purposes some of our historic patients, and, and it's it's just sad that we had just these three or four chemotherapy drugs and you would just modify them and try a different combination and knowing fully well that we've reached that point where not much is going to happen. So compared to that, yes, we have now so many different options and so many different things to explore and combine them together and use them in sequence. So yes, this is a great time to be treating myeloma. Yeah, and, and you know, from a patient standpoint, when I first started kind of trying to learn about this disease, I came across a lot of old, um, you know, of course, videos and interviews and, and articles that, you know, indicated that the cure was right around the corner. And I look and I think, gee, well, that, they're saying that from 10 years ago. 
and it worries me to hear that the cure is right around the corner now, but I'm thinking that I should have more hope in believing that that statement is actually attainable right. with and, and all of the changes now. Yeah, no, I totally agree that uh, you can just look at the statistics of life expectancy. So when I was a fellow in uh, early 1990s uh, uh, doing my hematology oncology fellowship, you could pick up any textbook of hematology oncology and it would say that multiple myeloma, incurable disease, the average survival is about three years. Patients are treated with melphalan and prednisone. Uh, about 40% patients respond. Less than uh, 10% achieve a complete remission. And uh, as I said, life expectancy was about three years. Today, Although we, no one is talking about cure, but if you take an average myeloma patient, standard risk disease, uh, before this uh, uh, advent of four new drugs in the last three months or so, uh, the general consensus based on the available data is that the life expectancy for a standard risk myeloma is close to a decade, and it's mm-hmm. only to get better. Uh, so, yes, uh, we are making great progress mainly because we have so many better understanding of the disease, availability of so many different treatments, and in a creative, intelligent way, combining and utilizing them uh, to the maximum benefit. Well, that's terrific. We we um, support clinical trials within our own Facebook groups. We you know we have them for every stage. We have them for MGUS patients and smoldering patients, and we encourage people to get uh, involved. We're encouraging within those groups for for patients to become involved in Dr. Gobriel's P-Crowd study, where she's doing the um, prospective study of just you know serum samples and bone marrow samples, and uh, patients can actually just mail them to her, and you know, this opened up a whole new avenue for patients to really start becoming excited about joining these. Um, clinical trials, because in a, in a, it's an observational trial, but it's still a trial. So if Absolutely. we could kind of generate the interest at that level, it's really a terrific thing to really um, uh, have people just become excited about it. Absolutely. So it was really a pleasure speaking to you today, sir, and thank you so very, very much for your time. And, Jenny, thanks for taking my call. Oh, thank you very much for your questions. Okay, we have another caller, 889-4902. Go ahead with your question. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call, doctor. And I just wanted to know if vaccines work for high-risk myeloma patients. Sure. Uh, Thank you. Um, So, uh, good question. So, one of the things about immunotherapy. So again, we will find out as more and more clinical trial data come out. But one thing about immunotherapy, and you will be hearing this term a lot, that uh, whether it is antibodies, whether it's vaccines or T cells, they say that these are risk agnostic, meaning that uh, when you're using immunotherapy, they're not going after any particular gene or protein where some cells are more resistant, the ones who have, uh, which have high-risk uh, uh, chromosomal abnormalities like uh, 17p deletion or something. When you're using the immune system, immune system does not differentiate between a 
cell with high-risk abnormality and the cell with low-risk abnormality. So based on that, the general impression is that uh, with immunotherapy, we may be able to overcome this resistance of high-risk myeloma. Uh, so that's my hope, and that's the hypothesis, and we will find out. But yes, the simple answer is that we see a lot of promise in immunotherapeutic approaches in overcoming these high-risk features. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you so much for your question. Um, Dr. Kozlobosh, we're, we're so grateful. We're over our time, but we're so thankful that you joined us today. And um, we're so appreciative for your wonderful research and efforts for myeloma patients, and we look forward to your next trial opening about these immunotherapy transplant approaches. And we're just grateful for all you do. No, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, and I really appreciate this opportunity. And, uh, well, keep going. Keep keep uh, keeping those transplant patients going great, <laughs> and and continue your work in the, in the immunotherapy area. We're excited to see what you'll come up with. Sure. Thank you very much for your encouragement, and have a All good right. evening. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next show as we learn more about how we as patients can help drive to a cure by joining clinical trials. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.